Sometimes a publicly traded company is right in front of you, hiding in plain sight. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today from the Great White North, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jim Gillies. Good to see you. Good to be seen, Chris. Longtime listeners will know that when Jim Gillies shows up on Motley Fool Money, to talk about a stock, you can you can expect a couple of things out of the business. One is, it's probably a business that most American investors have never heard of. And two, there's a reason Jim is a fan of that business that most Americans have never heard of. And no exception today with a company called MTY Food Group, which reported first quarter earnings, uh, there must have been something positive because the stock is up about four percent. But this is this is an interesting one to me because you you and I I hadn't heard of the parent company, but I have heard of the brands or at least some of the brands because this is basically if you've ever been to a food court in Canada or the United States, you've probably seen these fast food slash fast casual businesses, and dozens of them are under the MTY food group umbrella. Yeah, they've got uh, somewhere north, I believe now, of 85 banners. It wasn't uncommon, say, five or seven years ago, if you went to a mall food court, which, you know, I try to avoid like the plague, but um, but you would go to a mall food court, and you know half of the stores in that mall food court are all owned by MTY, and you wouldn't know it. But they are a restaurant franchisor, Chris, which I've always um, found interesting. Yeah, I I love the MTY story. Uh, MTY just quickly for American types, uh, they they are uh, MTY on the TSX, the Toronto Stock Exchange. Uh, there is a pink sheet listing. It's MTYFF or MTY Fast Food if you like, uh, if you want to uh, get your get your kicks on the pink sheets. I've always held that they're a very foolish story. Uh, they had a very foolish founder leader. Uh, he was largely, I mean, he's in his 70s now, so he's largely stepped back from the business, but he's still the largest shareholder and and, and is chairman of the board. Uh, his name is Ming She. Pull up a two-decade stock price of this, uh, or stock chart of this company, and you can see how um, Mr. She and anyone who's followed him has, has done pretty well. Uh, so, they're a restaurant franchisor, again, for about 85 banners, I'm going to say roughly. Um, they, it was about 80, and then they made a couple of big acquisitions at the very tail end of, uh, of 2022. Um, but some of the brands that the Americans in the audience will, will have heard of, Wetzel's Pretzels, they recently bought that. Uh, Famous Dave's Barbecue, they bought Barbecue Holdings, uh, which owned uh, them, among several other things. Cold Stone Creamery, uh, Taco Time, uh, Blimpies. Baja Fresh. Baja Fresh. There's a great story in the Baja Fresh acquisition. Uh, some people may remember Baja Fresh as one third or one of the three brands that Wendy's, back in an old prior day, was uh, the Wendy's brand was going to use to take over the world. It was Wendy's, Tim Hortons, and Baja Fresh. Wendy's paid $300 million for Baja Fresh back in the day, kind of fast Mexican casual, I guess before Chipotle was hip. When And, and at some point, they I guess they didn't really execute with Baja Fresh, and they sold it off for pennies, and then MTY picked it up a couple years later for like $30 million 
$90% off. Who doesn't like a 90% off sale? Uh, Wendy's probably overpaid. MTY probably underpaid. But the the idea of a franchisor, I, I really like franchising businesses because I sell you a concept. I sell you, I, I hand you all the capital risk. I hand you all the operating risk. Uh, and I just take 6% of your top line sales. So before you've paid anybody a penny, I take my 6%. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to probably also uh, hit you for 2 3 4% for an advertising fund uh, as well, which you're going to pay. Um, and so it it's a very high margin um, business. They have a very, they have good margins, EBITDA margins, or they now they call it adjusted EBITDA because, you know, we couldn't stick with EBITDA. And, and what MTY does is they've been basically, they will recycle the capital that comes from those royalty payments and they'll go out and buy additional concepts. And, uh, you know, and, and again, I, I'm, I'm a quirky kind of investor guy. I like strange things when I see them. Um, just because I, I find them interesting. Maybe no one else buzz, but does me. But, but so when I see a company like MTY, they'll make a $300 million Canadian dollars, near enough, uh, acquisition of, say, Wetzel's Pretzels. And it gets the same fanfare in, you know, in terms of the write-up as a few years ago, MTY bought... I don't think they bought the whole thing. I think they bought 60% of this little company called La Dipperie, which is a French ice cream. It's in Quebec. It's a French ice cream chain. I think they had less than 10 outlets. I mean, it's a rounding error. It's a who cares acquisition. Why would you even bother? Uh, but you've got the same press releases for La Dipperie as you did for um, Wetzel's Pretzels or for Barbecue Holdings. I don't know. I find that quirky. I find that endearing. So I like that. But as I mentioned, uh, they, they they did report this morning. They did report this morning. Numbers uh, look good. I'm going to give a little qualified good. Reported EBITDA, or again, adjusted EBITDA, or Lord, now they're calling it normalized adjusted EBITDA because, you know, we've always got to have more superlatives. Uh, what they're doing, fools, is they're taking out the, um, the one-time costs associated with acquisitions, which is actually reasonable, but I just hate this progression of you know, increasingly strange terms to for non-GAAP metrics. But they, they announced their earnings this morning. Uh, their EBITDA numbers uh, look very good. They might actually look better than I was thinking, and I'm going to explain why in a minute. Uh, their cash, the cash backstop of that has not great, actually. I would have liked more cash from rather than EBITDA, but, uh, you know, I, I think this might just be a, a quarterly thing. Numbers look generally good, but Chris, you, you wanted to ask a question? I wanted to immediately jump to the future, Jim. I, I, wanted, I wanted you to look into your crystal ball and tell me, where is this business three years from now? Like, is the, is the path forward? Because one of the things you said to me earlier today, was this is a stock that I think is undervalued. Yes. This is a business this is a straightforward business. This is even if people haven't heard of the parent company, they're probably familiar with at least some of the brands. And I think it's a, a business model in part because of the way you laid it out that people can wrap their heads around. So is this just sort of a stead like do you think the the next three to five years um, looks similar to let's just say uh, 2015 to 2020. We'll just we'll remove the pandemic for a moment. But just like, is this just in your mind? Is the future of this business a pretty steady? Like this is just how it's going to go. It's not the the most exciting business in the world, but uh, if you like steady cash flow, this is one to put on your radar. 
That is exactly what I think it is. And I do think it is undervalued today. And I'll explain why. Uh, franchisors, because they offload most of the, the operational and day-to-day costs and what have you to the, the franchise level. Now, that means pick good franchisees, right? Don't, don't pick franchisees who are, you know, uh, 50 bucks away from going bankrupt themselves all the time. And MTY is a very good track record. So, but I'm just saying, like, there is, there is know-how at the, at the parent company level that, that specialized know-how that they need to have, and they do. But because the, the costs are moved to the franchise or, or franchisee level at the franchise or level, which is MTY, uh, they, they, they produce a very high margin stream of EBITDA, free cash flow and historically because of that higher margin i've always i've always kind of i won't get into the boring math behind it but i've always kind of felt that if i can pay under 12 times ibida for this higher margin stream i'm generally happy okay because they're usually making a lot of acquisitions it makes it um and a lot of the acquisitions, again, the two most recent ones, you don't have a full year in the, in the rearview mirror with those yet. So you kind of got to run rate these things and kind of figure it out. But I figure it at, at this point in time, what we have now is we have a we have a company capable of doing about 250 to $260 million a year in EBITDA. And I've been willing to pay up to about 12x EBITDA for that. I know it sounds funny when, you know... We might have talked about paying 20 times sales, but you know, I'm 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 cheap and I'm 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 the value guy. So, at, with today's results, I think they're good. Uh, I've I, I've marginally increased my estimate of what I think this current business can produce on a run rate business, which is actually about 260 million. But if you want to keep me at 250 million, that's fine. And based on where the stock price, even with the five percent rise today, and there is some debt on the balance sheet because they they're very protective of their equity. They don't house, hose out shares easily. The business today on an enterprise value, so that is the market capitalization plus the net debt, is trading at about 8.9, just shy of nine times EBITDA. And again, I'm, I've historically been willing to, to pay up to 12 whenever I've recommended it, whenever I've bought it personally, because they have this history of increasing that EBITDA over time, increasing revenue, increasing cash flows. So I am willing to do that. And then you, you also realize that you know, they, they pay a dividend. It's a fairly modest yield today, but the important thing is they raise their dividend every year, practically. It's not, not so much during the pandemic, but I think we can all agree that was a weird time. They have a large shareholder in Ming She, as I mentioned, the founder, and he's now a chairman of the board. Uh, he's, he's out of the day-to-day stuff. Uh, you know, I think he's getting, he's got like 20% of the business, so he takes 20% of the dividend. So he probably probably wants to keep that dividend flowing. And importantly, they can afford it. They're not, the dividend doesn't use very much of their cash flow, frankly. They could double it tomorrow and be fine. If you're looking for the next ten bagger in six months or whatever, are we looking for those anymore? This is not this is not your Huckleberry. However, I do believe that the combination of dividend plus appreciation of just in general as results come in, appreciation of the equity, particularly as they pay down debt from their more recent large acquisitions, I, I think you're gonna you're gonna get a low to mid teens return total return here, which. Perhaps at my advanced age of investing, I'm perfectly fine with because I think it's going to be fairly consistent and consistent results over a long enough period of time generates some really spectacular returns for investors. Real quick, let me hit you with the question I gave to Jason Moser and Bill Mann earlier this week. Earnings season starts on Friday. What are you going to be watching this earnings season? 
Oh, I'm going to argue it started today with MTY, but they're they're they they're on a November fiscal year, so they no no that. disrespect to MTY. <laughs> sure, but as far as I'm concerned, earnings season okay. starts on Friday. Sure, uh, let's run with that. So my. I'm going to give you a company that I'm watching because it's a favorite company of mine, as is MTY, I guess. Um, it's a company that I spent most of the first three quarters of 2022 going, this one's a powder keg, this one's a powder keg, watch, this this one's going to bump, you watch. When they reported their Q3 earnings, stock went up 38% in a day. It was tea and metals all around. Uh, and that company is MedPace Holdings, which is M-E-D-P on, uh, I believe, the NASDAQ. Yeah, NASDAQ. And so, MedPace is another one that I categorize as very uh, foolish in the best sense of the word. So, it's a, uh, the founding CEO, Dr. August Trendle, started the company in 1992. He's still CEO today, still the largest shareholder. Uh, put $155 million of his own money into the stock last year ahead of that third quarter. Company itself bought back close to 13, 14% of their shares because, again, it's looking really good. The Q4 numbers came out and the stock sold off. Now, why did the stock sell off? Well, the stock sold off because Dr. Trundle, who is, I will say, is if you ever listen to him on the conference calls, guy's a very straight shooter. Uh, guy's not afraid to say negative things about his industry or his business, which is rare, I will argue, in the world of executives uh, talking about businesses. He's, he's, just, he's very blunt, and I, and I like blunt. And so, MedPace is a contract research organization. They do various tests for drugs and medical devices. They basically allow the outsourcing for the drug companies and medical devices. They outsource, much like MTY does with the operational risk of running restaurants, drug companies, medical device companies outsource the actual day-to-day testing and you know clinical trials, outpace it to CROs like MedPace. So, MedPace is taking on a task that those other companies don't want to do. And traditionally, they've been very good at it. They've been very cash generative at it. But you then should wonder about the health of the companies that are farming out to MTY or MTY to MedPace. You worry about the health of those companies. And those companies coming into 2023 looked a little strange, particularly in like the biotech space as interest rates went high and the cost of financing for those companies might have got a little dodgy. Uh, it went into overdrive, frankly, when Silicon Bank went down because uh, a lot it, people construed that a lot of MedPace's customers would have had money with Silicon Valley Bank and, oh my God, what's going to happen? Of course, we all know that the government stepped in and Silicon Valley depositors have been made whole or made fully whole. So, this should alleviate some concern. But the, the, the issues potentially at MedPace, and all I should underline, all of this is basically coming from exterior, it's external questions. MedPace themselves haven't said anything. And the other thing about MedPace that you should know is they are traditionally very... Um, going to say uh, under-promise and over-deliver. The last three years, I think, their initial guidance for the fiscal year, every single time it disappoints investors. And then every single time they, they blow past it. So, I'm not too sure why investors react negatively to it when they initially, but that's what happened again when, when the fourth quarter numbers came out. They gave initial guidance that, you know, basically investors puked all over them and, that's, and we're out. So, at, at just at a, price is a little higher than right now. Uh, I've recommended this company a couple of times in Hidden Gems Canada, where I where I hang my hat most of the time, and it's been a great performer for us. And uh, the last time I featured it in that service, I featured it in our Best Buys Now um, 
column. And I pointed out that the valuation, this is in end of February, and at a slightly higher stock price than we have today, uh, the valuation was essentially better. It, it, the valuation had gotten better vis-a-vis where we had recommended it in the middle of 2022, and more importantly, much better than after that 38% stock price reaction after the Q3 numbers. So those numbers, those valuation numbers are today marginally better. And again, I've followed this company for a lot of years. Uh, you know, The management team, uh, as manifested in Dr. Trundle, again, founded the company in 92. He remains CEO today. He's been CEO the entire time. Um, I'm going to suggest he's probably seen one or two things like what we're featuring in the market before. You know, that kind of experience and that kind of ignoring the market and focusing on your business is exactly what I think investors should be looking for with their, if they're going to invest in individual stocks, that's what you should be looking for. It's not a sexy story. I get that. But then again, I never go for the sexy stories. I just go for the cash flow and good valuation stories. And it seems to work pretty well. MedPace Holdings is scheduled to report on April 25th. So I know what you're going to be doing that day. Jim Gillies, Mm -hmm. thanks for being here. Thank you. When it comes to office space, most businesses are still paying their rent on time. But what happens when it's time to renegotiate the lease? Ricky Mulvey caught up with Deidre Wooler to discuss the wall of debt that's coming due and some more promising sectors in real estate that investors should keep an eye on. Banks do not like it when their loans are worth less than what they paid for them, and many commercial real estate loans are going to take a haircut. Deidre Woolard is a real estate expert at The Motley Fool and has been following this story closely. Uh, Deidre, these stats got my attention. According to Bloomberg, $1.5 trillion of U.S. commercial real estate debt is coming due before the end of 2025. Morgan Stanley estimates that office and retail property valuations are going to fall by about 40% from peak to trough. Like This is a big deal, right? Yeah, this is a big deal. And we've got, there's really about 5.6 trillion of commercial real estate uh, debt totals. So it's even beyond 2025, there's, there's other things to look at. But it's also, it's not the, as much the debt. I mean, the debt is huge. It's the timing, right? Because right now, so much of this is in office real estate. And we've all seen the impact of work from home. So you've got those kind of systemic concerns about office not being desirable. And about 25% of office real estate is due to be refinanced in 2023. So debt's coming due. You either have to repay it or refinancing it. You're refinancing it in an environment where you've got nervous banks, stricter lending, higher rates, uncertain valuations for so much of the real estate that's that's backing these loans. And, and that's part of the concern here. Yeah. Another stat I want to get your reaction to is that 70% of other commercial real estate loans that are maturing in the next five years are held by banks. Um, I I feel like I'm looking into a black hole trying to describe what I see. I have, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, that, that part is worrying me as well. Uh, I was recently reading Bill Ackman's uh, shareholder letter for um, Pershing Square, and he pointed out the role of the smaller real, regional banks in this. And that's the part that is, is particularly important, because it makes sense, right? Smaller regional banks would own this kind of debt. It's highly localized. You want local banks because they understand the local market. 
But it creates this real problem if we start to see a lot of foreclosures because these smaller banks, they're already under stress. They're seeing deposit flight. They don't want these buildings on their books any more than they and anybody wanted to own houses. Banks did not want to own houses during the great financial crisis. It just, unfortunately, it worked out that way. So all of that is is worrying me. It's just this kind of recipe for disaster. And I think the other thing is I feel like sometimes people don't understand how uh, how important commercial real estate is to the U.S. economy. So it contributed 2.3 trillion last year. You know, we don't we we tend to obsess over the housing market, myself included. But but commercial real estate it's it's part of our daily lives. And as we start to think about this, and now it's getting covered by the media, it makes people start thinking about their local banks and the risk there. And then I'm also thinking about the impact on institutional investors because that's where a lot of this is being is being financed. Things like pension plans, like Calpers, which is the California pension plan. Yeah, to the to the point of regional banks, I, I keep seeing this argument that many of the commercial real estate loans are. Are in good standing. They haven't been delinquent on it, but I don't think that's necessarily an accurate picture of what's to come. If a lot of those uh, loans are getting repriced, or a lot of businesses just exit out of their their office space and office buildings. Yeah, it's not it's not bad debt for the most part, and it's not and they're not bad buildings. I mean, this is Class A and Class B real estate. This, these are these are good buildings. But they are seeing significant vacancy rates, and and that's and it, that may continue. Let's dive into the ripple effect. So, let's say that the Morgan Stanley scenario plays out. Banks want a higher interest rate for their office building debt. That seems like a reasonable prediction, and the 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 value of those loans are written down. What are what are the ripple effects? There's just a lot of ripple effects. So, yeah, as I said, the money's going to be tight. So, there's that there, that's that squeeze right there. The other thing I think about a lot is that we don't necessarily know the value of the underlying real estate because. There hasn't been a lot of activity in the last year in terms of commercial real estate transactions, and there's there's this expectation gap. We've seen it in residential real estate, where there's a sort of six months, maybe even up to a year of lag between what people saw six months ago and, and sellers expecting to get that when the market shifts, and and that creates a real problem. So I, th- I think there, the owners are going to have to make some hard decisions. I've already seen some some high profile loans go into special servicing, which sort of just like opens up the the ability to to negotiate. But but then what's next? What happens to these buildings? So I'm thinking about other uses. There's been a lot of talk about multifamily conversion. Multifamily conversion, very small part of the market. It's it's expensive. It's really hard to convert a building. So then you start thinking about other uses. Maybe vertical warehouses, maybe data centers, but then you've got zoning concerns, you've got energy usage. So the, the what's next for all of this real estate is the big question. The leases for these office buildings and commercial real estate are different from the leases and mortgages you might interact with for getting an apartment or, or your home. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, they're they're longer first of all, and you've also a lot of times the tenant is reconfiguring the floor plan. Based on on their needs, so when they move out, there's going to have to be some some money spent to to get it up to for the next tenant. You've also got you've got insurance, you've got common area maintenance. You think about those big lobbies in in office buildings. They they you know some someone has to pay for for that to look so pretty when you walk in. The other thing I'm watching is subleases. Subleases are becoming a bigger and bigger part of the CRE market. I've seen a lot of sublease activity. We've seen some high-profile ones. Salesforce—they've put up uh, subleases in multiple markets. 
uh, Verizon, Amazon, Meta, lot of subleasing activity, which is putting additional strain on it. So you mentioned that the commercial real estate market has been slow. There might be uh, a window into what's going on with with Signature Bank. So Signature Bank shut down by regulators earlier in March. It was the third largest real estate uh, commercial real estate bank in New York City. A lot that went wrong, but one thing to focus on is that Signature had about $36 billion in real estate loans. So now the FDIC having taken over those loans or, or getting some investment bankers together to sell Signature's loan book. That might sound kind of boring, but why should investors care about this sale? What, what are you watching? It's not boring for me at all. As as a commercial real estate watcher, it's something I'm I'm watching kind of avidly, and I think the whole market is is watching to see what's going to happen next. So you've got these loans; they're going to be divided up into pools. They're they're good loans. They're they're high performing loans. Interest rates maybe a couple of points lower than the current market, but who wants these loans? So are banks going to want to take on these loans? Where are these loans going to go? And the fact that the FDIC brought in Newmark already means that that nobody was exactly chomping at the bit to like pick these loans up. So what we're looking for is: Are they going to get sold at a discount? Is that going to set a new normal? Are we going to see? Are we going to see something that makes us feel pessimistic, or are they going to find a buyer relatively quickly? That would be a sign of health and make us feel really optimistic. Yeah, I can easily imagine the end of this story from from a pessimistic angle. Maybe maybe I lean towards that too much, but I, I, there's also a version of this story with the commercial real estate market where you know fears were overblown and it wasn't that big of a deal. You know, what's the version where that ending plays out, and, and do you think it's credible? You know, I think when we make predictions, and everybody wants to look at the worst case scenario, but there are some ways in which it plays out, and it's not a big deal. You know, it so much depends on the Fed. I mean, I hate talking about the Fed. I think we've focused too much on it. But if we get that normalization of interest rates, maybe even you know, it starts to, the interest rates start to go down. Maybe it gets easier to refinance. These loans get more attractive. The other thing, the the big like magic eight ball, who knows what's going to happen, is is remote work. Maybe we'll get more remote work. Maybe we'll get less. We don't seem to know. I think the numbers have stabilized, but. You know, then I'm looking at productivity. I'm looking at uh, layoffs and people wanting to have that visibility in the office, and employers wanting to have that. So maybe that's a way this works out. I, I appreciate your your uh, not looking into the crystal ball too deeply. I was reading this this article in CNBC. It was a commercial real estate analyst for for Moody's Analytics. Uh, and, and he said, quote, 2025 is where we really see that pivot toward uh, recovery for office, end quote. And, you know, I kept thinking, like, my guy, a lot of real estate experts have been making predictions on back to office, and we're still doing that three years from now. I think we're going to be doing that for a while. I think things can change very quickly. So uh, I want to talk. Let's let's end with some optimism, some some silver linings, because there are parts of the real estate market showing some promise. Uh, what are the what are the sectors that you find compelling or silver linings for investors to watch? I think there's always silver linings. I mean, the fun part about real estate is different sectors come into come into fashion. It it just happens. For the last couple of years, industrial and multifamily have been sort of the darlings of the sector, and they're both still doing well. Industrial, maybe we saw a little bit of a drop off with some of the with Amazon giving up some space. With multifamily, there's a lot of supply at the high end, so you've got a little bit of rent compression happening. Retail, retail has been doing great. People were saying a, a few years ago. Retail is dead. The same way they're saying office is dead now, they're saying retail, it's never coming back. 
that that turned out to be very not true. It's been going up as office has been going down. I love those kind of grocery anchored retail, that essential business thing that we saw so much during the pandemic. Looking at hospitality too, and the impact of remote work has led to this sort of rise of medium term rentals, like a month or so. So those those are areas that I'm looking at. Deidre Rollard, appreciate your time and your insight. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.